Hi, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we strive to live life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast to help you plug in at Quest both in person and online. Now, let's dive into this week's teaching. Okay, we've been talking about uh, courageous choices in this series, and we've been talking in this about the choices that God brings all of our way at one time or another in life where we have to make a courageous choice to follow Him into the promise for our lives. And so far, this series has been largely talking about stories that have gotten at uh, these big risks that we take, the big courage things, the kind of the hurrah things, the just go do it, the seize the day, the the conquer the world types of risks that we have to have in our courage and choices. But honestly, one of the things I'm concerned about in this series is that you'll walk away with a view of courage that isn't complete. You'll walk away with just this brash you know, kind of against all odds, risking idea of courage. And, and certainly God tells us, doesn't he, at different times in our life to step out in that kind of against all odds courage. But to leave you with that idea of courage would leave you with an incomplete picture. Because there are also ways that God brings us choices, and we're going to look at in our scripture today, that balances that picture of against all odds. And, and it really leaves us with this element of courage that's not the seas of day kind of courage, but it's the courage of restraint. It's the courage of focus. It's the courage to pay attention to the small things. And it's the courage to just follow through with what is in life. Because Here's the theme for today. Walking into our promised land requires a courage to hold steady a lot of times in our life. And we're going to look at three different ways that God invites us to hold steady. And within that today, throughout this whole message, there's going to be this interesting backdrop. It's actually kind of a backdrop of this whole series. It's this backdrop of the tension between love and judgment. So we're going to look at the historical account found in Joshua 7 as where we're primarily going to be, but we need to go back a little bit uh, to set the stage. So where we've been up to this point in the series is God has led the people out of slavery from Egypt all the way to the promised land where they, at the first time when God asked them to go in, they rebelled. And they end up spending 40 more years in the wilderness. And now they're back there again, and they've experienced some tremendous miracles because they've been faithful to God and trusted in this time. They crossed the Jordan River in flood stage on dry ground. Jeremy talked last week about how God gave them the city of Jericho through miraculous intervention. Throughout this whole thing, though, there's this struggle that I find that I've had. um, Wendy, as we've talked about it, has had a lot. And I, I, I suspect many of you have had as well with this whole story because of all this talk of conquering, of of war, and of death of the people. And there's one and a half verses that we, up till now we've skipped over that I think give us really profound insight into God and love and judgment and war and his people. We actually see it in Joshua 5, where Joshua sees this man who you and I and he will quickly recognize is not a man, it's an angel of God. And the text reads this way, it says, Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? And the angel replied, Neither. He replied, 
but as a commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come to you. So this man is really a high-ranking angel of God. And to Joshua's favoritism question, are you, who are you for? The angel responds, neither. God is not for the Israelites as a favored, superior people, and he's not against the people of the land. God wants all of them to be saved. So this conquering and taking over the land that God has said them to do is not an ethnic cleansing. It's not a religious war. It's judgment upon sin. And historians actually note, looking at this time, that the people of Israel, the the people that Israel is driving out of the land, for them, war had become a major economic engine. Every year and throughout the year, tribes would go and just war against each other, conquering and killing and stealing goods and gold and silver and taking the women and children and raping and enslaving them. And also, we also know from biblical and historical accounts that many of the people of that land that were being driven out were uh, doing human sacrifice of their own children on a regular basis to their gods. And God, the real God, has been trying to save them from their wickedness for a long time. We know from the biblical text that God explicitly says he's been giving them 400 years where he's been trying to save and heal them. And the text says God even shows us even that God continues to offer that salvation even in this moment that anybody who would repent like Rahab and like others as as you'll see through Joshua who are willing to repent and put their trust in God, he is still willing to save. That's when Joshua says, are you for us or for them? The angel says, neither. But still, some look at this whole command of God to kill or drive the people out and the inhabitants of the land, and we struggle because this brutality that we see doesn't seem consistent with a loving God. How can that be consistent? And so some will actually look at this and they'll try to say, well, the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. The God we see in Jesus, they'll try to say, is this evolved God. He, he, he has had a makeover. He's hit the reset button. One of his angelic political advisors came to him and said, you know, God, if you put on a kinder face, uh, your likability polls will go high, your negatives will go down, and people will be more likely to elect you their God, right? But the Bible teaches that the God of the Old and the God of the New has not changed. The God of love we see in the New Testament is the same God of love in the Old Testament. The God of judgment in the Old Testament is the same God of judgment in the New Testament. For example, we see this in Jonah, one of the more famous stories of the Bible, where God sent Jonah to preach to the Ninevites, which is current-day Mosul, Iraq. And God was asking him to call them to repent. But Jonah runs the other way, by sea, because he hates the Ninevites, because of all that they've done to him and his people and the evil they've inflicted upon them and the pain. And Jonah runs the other way. He's swallowed by a whale. He's vomited out on the beach. And he finally decides to go and preach to the Ninevites. And they repent. And the text says Jonah is angry. He hates them. He wants justice. He wants even revenge. He wants the Ninevites to reap what he thinks is their just due. And in chapter 4, Jonah's talking in there, and he, he says this about the Old Testament God. He says, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending 
calamity. And Jonah's saying this in the context of saying, that's the reason I ran. I did not want you to be this to them, but I know that's how kind and patient of a God and loving of a God you are. See, extraordinary kindness and patience is who God is, both in the old and the new. I mean, remember, working 400 years, hoping to avoid judgment of these people for 400 years, and still, even after that, accepting them if they're willing to repent and come and follow him. But he is judging those who remain hard-hearted, refusing to repent. But still, let's look at this more. There's this question that we still ask, is there a disconnect between love and judgment? We struggle with this, don't we? Well, let me ask you a question. If a person raped your daughter, what would you want to do to that person? You'd want them to pay, right? In fact, some of you dads, you'd be getting the shotgun out. You'd want them dead, right? See, we have compassion and we understand that love is actually what drives judgment. When we see, like we did in the news a couple weeks ago, the father whose, son, whose daughter was raped and murdered by this guy lunging across the courtroom trying to get him, we have compassion because we understand that love's, love drives this father's judgment. Every victim cries out, for judgment. Without judgment, there is no love, there is no freedom, and there is no hope. But, you know, it's different when we're on the wrong side of that justice, right? When we're on the wrong side of justice, we tend to get angry and defensive. And sometimes we feel like the people on the wrong side of judgment in the Bible should be angry and defensive because we feel like it's not fair. But I suspect our problem really with a lot of these passages is not in reality the disconnect between love and judgment because we, we understand that when we look at examples like we just talked about. But I think it really ends up being our anger that God defines right and wrong and we sometimes don't like his definitions of what's right and wrong because we end up on the wrong side of justice. But in our hearts we know that justice and judgment in reality is founded in love and they are inextricably tied together. I mean, let's paraphrase G.K. Chesterton, a great writer in the Christian world. He says, if you dilute God's judgment to make him more loving, you actually dilute his love as well because they are mixed together and only together do they have the full strength and beauty. So the angel actually goes on to tell Joshua how the people of Israel are to go about conquering Jericho. In Joshua 6, we see it. They're actually giving him instructions specifically on what to do with the plunder. And it says this. It says, The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about our, your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and the gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. And then we see what that action lived out looked like in verse 24. It says, Then they burned the whole city and everything in it, but they put the silver, the gold, the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. Now, why is this important? 
It's because the people are, God is asking the people to live out a principle that He tells us all throughout Scripture, all of us even to this day to live out in our life. Now He's making a, a, a special application of it here, but it's the same principle. You see, Jericho is the first place God is giving the Israelites in the promised land. And when you look throughout the Bible, the first of everything belongs to God, whether it's the first of the flock, uh, the Psalms teach, of us, teach us the first of our thoughts each day should be His, or we should pray first. The first of all, gives, God gives us financially, being tithed, 10% given to Him and His work through the church. At the very baseline, this command to Israel, God is saying, I want you to ensure that in your life, I am first. It is the choice to have the courage to hold steady in keeping God first in our lives, trusting Him first above all else. And the Israelites have been doing this well, right? Going through the Jordan River. But God still commands the people, hold steady in that giving the first to me. Take nothing of the plunder from Jericho. No grain, no produce, no goods, no furniture, no tools. Burn it all as worship to me and trust that I am your provider. Only take, he says, that which is the the precious metals, the gold, the silver, the bronze, and the iron. But don't even take that for yourself. In this instance, he asks them to go above and beyond in giving the first. He says, give all of it to the treasury or the tabernacle. Give it all to the church, is what he's saying. And as Joshua spells this out for the people, he says that when God is not first in your life, his protection, in the text he said, will not be with you and destruction will happen in our lives when we do not keep God first. The prophet Malachi, the uh, last book in the Old Testament, he says this about the tithe, about giving our first 10% to the church. He says, giving our first intent, he says, when we steal the first and best from God and keep it for ourselves, he says, we will live under a curse. This action is also, though, in direct contradiction to the sin of the people of the land. The sin of the people of the land making war and looting is a major part of the economy. The strong over the weak. Take whatever you can, however you want. It was greed and power run amok. And so God is asking His people, like He always does, like He asks us to do in every single one who follows Him, put me first. And in asking the people of Israel to begin their conquering of the land by acting in the opposite spirit of the sin of greed that controlled the peoples of the land they are displacing. And God spells it out clearly. Joshua spells it out clearly. And he repeats the command another time to make sure everybody really gets it. And this command is perfectly in line with what God had given them in the law where he'd instructed them to give the first. This is not a foreign concept to them. They clearly, clearly understood what God was asking them when he asked this. But as chapter 7 starts, we get a report on the obedience to this command by the Israelites. And it says this in verse 1. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, took some of them, so the Lord's anger burned against Israel. And as chapter 7 continues, you see Israel move on from their victory at Jericho to, to their next objective, which was to take this small little city in the hills, Ai, and the spies come back and say, oh, guys, this city's going to be easy. Let's just, just send part of the army. So they just send 3,000 people, confident of victory, confident God is with them. And they get there, and they're soundly routed. 
36 people of the Israelites lose their lives and many more are wounded. Why? Because Achan, part of the Israelite community, violated the principle of the first and best. But there's also another principle he he violated. He didn't have the courage to hold steady in letting God, letting even the little sins, preventing even the little sins from taking root in his life. See, we all have stories, don't we? of one small mistake leading to bigger things. Uh, recently, when we had the fun field trip to, uh, for Quest to the Hendron Dairy Farm, I was reminded as I was talking to Dale and Michael uh, as we were walking by their manure lagoons that hold 8 million gallons. Isn't that, isn't that a pleasant thought? When I was 19, I worked on the farm as a hired hand, and I, one of my jobs was to empty the big pits under the great big hog houses. And they were like 10 feet deep, and you'd, 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 you know, you'd put an 8-inch hose in there, and you'd, you'd suck up 2,000 gallons in 10 minutes, and you'd go out to the field, and you'd blow it out, and you'd come back and do it again. Well, one day, uh, we were almost near the bottom of the 10-foot pit, and there was this crust, big crust, that wasn't breaking up. And my boss, Steve, and Steve is this really interesting guy. If you put a robe on him, he looked like the um, white, immaculately manicured movie star Jesus pictures that were around and popular for so many years. And uh, he had this bright idea. He said, you know how you blow in a malt? What if we reverse the suction and we try to, you know, bubble it and break that thing up so we don't have to get down in the pit ourselves? So we went to the front of the machine, we reversed the suction, we went back. We're looking through the three-foot hole. He cracks it. I got my eyes and my mouth closed just in time. We took a bath of liquid and not-so-liquid hog stuff. I mean, my, my glasses had that much stuff on the front of them. It was, it was horrible. It was horrible. One small mistake had lasting consequences. We stunk for three days, no matter how hard we scrubbed or how long we showered. It was horrible. But on a more serious note, many of us can think back to one small thing we did that had far-reaching consequences in our lives, can't we? One small mistake, one small decision that opened the door to a much bigger mess. You see, later on in the chapter, we discovered that Achan, what Achan took was just this nice imported garment, a little silver and gold. If you put it in today's values, it would be about $8,000 worth of value, of value in, our, in our world today. I mean, that's nice, but it's not enough to retire on. I mean, it, and, and it's really a drop in the bucket compared to the wealth of Jericho and all that went into the tabernacle treasury, the church treasury from that take. And, and, and for many... This is really still a tough passage to swallow because it seems harsh that Israel would get defeated, other people would get killed because of another person's sin. And that particular sin doesn't really even seem like that big of a deal. I mean, isn't it true that we often go through life thinking, oh, these these are small, harmless decisions, But, but in a moment you said some harsh words. And that relationship has never been the same. In a moment, you decided to, it was harmless to flirt with a coworker, and, and, and it led to pain and damage in your marriage or your life. No one ever t- intends to get addicted to pornography. It starts with one click, or choosing to watch a movie, or not turning our eyes away from a TV show when there's too much skin, too much sex on the screen. But we make that click, 
we friend that person. We don't turn our eyes away. We start that conversation online and we think it won't happen to me. It's just a little thing. But it does. Because every big sin starts with one little thing. I mean, no one decides to go bankrupt, do they? Or ruin themselves financially? It starts with buying that one $30 outfit that we don't have the money in the bank for. So we charge it and then we do it again. And we do it again. And eventually we do it again with some bigger things and, and then we're in trouble. I've never, anyone, I've never met anyone who planned to become an alcoholic. I've never met anyone who planned to be addicted to pornography or have an affair or get a divorce or go, go bankrupt. But it happens every day. Why? Because someone allows themselves to compromise in a small thing that leads to big things. Isn't it true? I mean, the big things cause the most pain and conflict in life. The, the, the big things in life that cause the most pain and conflict in life are generally started by one small, seemingly inconsequential decision. The scripture Achan record, in the scripture it records Achan saying, I, I thought it was beautiful and I coveted it about the garment. And you can almost hear him in that statement justifying himself, kind of going, this is supposed to be the promised land. It's full of good things. Surely God won't care if I enjoy a little bit of it right now. And along with that, I strongly suspect that what was going through Achan's mind is the thought of burning everything in the city. I mean, it was already part of the way through harvest season. A lot of the harvest had already been gathered. And, and here there are two million people needing to be fed of Israel before the next harvest comes. And Achan's probably thinking, we're burning all this stuff. I, if I, I better just take a little bit of silver and gold as a backup plan in case we don't have enough. At least I'll have something to buy some food with until the next harvest. I mean, come on, God is, God is getting everything else. I mean... This is a needle in the haystack compared to that. It's not a big deal. But big sin starts with one little step of compromise. And even within this, there's still another point of truth as to why this is a big deal and the consequences for Achan. It's, and it's this. We've talked about it before. It's your sin, my sin, is not just an individual thing. Your sin affects everyone around you. Remember the instruction we read earlier? If you don't obey this command, God said, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. In the New Testament, Jesus, Jesus uses the idea of yeast to talk about both righteousness and sin, saying yeast, it spreads throughout the entire dough. Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says, if one member of the body of Christ, the church, suffers, all suffer together. Even common sense and history illustrate this for us as well. The, ex the excesses of one generation become the norm for the next, don't they? So the sexual rebellion of the 1960s became the sexual norm for our culture today. Or one person's sinful, repeated, unrepented of anger can easily scar their kids and their kids' children for generations to come. Sometimes the biggest regrets we have in life start with one seemingly inconsequential, harmless, small decision that ripples and destroys. It defines our heart. 
And God asks us to, God asks us to give our heart to Him, to give the first and the best to Him, to give sacrificially even out of our need to the work of the church, to stay attentive to the small things of purity and obedience to God, even when culture is decrying those things, saying, don't be such a prude, it's not a big deal. Why are you making a big deal out of this? Because one aspect of courage in our choices that God wants us to be strong and faith-filled in is simply this, the courage and strength to restrain ourselves in obedience to Him and for the sake of our love for Him and for the sake of our love for others. Achan's level of sin was small compared to all that was won and given, but if we can't restrain ourselves in obedience and trust God in the little things, how can God trust us with a lot? That's almost a direct quote of what Jesus says in Luke 16.10. Further, think about it this way. If you can't restrain yourself in the face of your own need, if your need is bigger and louder than your trust of God's goodness and His Word to you, then you'll never make the courageous choices necessary to walk into the really good promises God has for you. So the question, what needs do you have that tempt you most to go outside the boundary, even in the small things that God has for our lives? Is it a purity issue? Is it a legal issue? Is it a work rule that you face that you don't like? Is it a financial issue? See, I came to the conclusion long ago, if, if I am not generous and tied to God's work through the church, even when I don't feel like I have enough, then I won't be generous when I have more. And that's what God is asking of all the people of Israel in this passage, to give the first and the best, to stay faithful even in the little things. He's asking them to protect the right kind of healthy habits like giving and the boundaries that help them stay faithful in all areas of their life to Him. But here's what I think is actually the most important lesson of Achan, which is this, to learn to make the regular choices, to have the courage to hold steady in focusing on God's goodness. So as we go through chapter 7 in Joshua, we see this process unfold. Achan is discovered uh, in this process, and the result is that his whole family and all of his belongings are taken outside the camp. They're all stoned to death, burned, and covered with a great big mound of rocks. And again, people look at this passage and they reject the Bible, at least the Old Testament, because of texts like this. When we start asking ourselves questions, why would God kill the whole family? Why not just Achan? In fact, why would God even kill Achan? Why not just give him a little time in the brig or, or give him some community service, right? And we get angry at God thinking, God's unfair, He's unloving. And it raises questions in us about God's character. But just like the sin of the ten men 40 years early, earlier, spread rapidly among the people of Israel and resulted in a whole nation rebelling and 40 years more in the wilderness. Sin is a highly communicable virus. It's highly likely Achan's sin had already spread to his whole family. I mean, the law that they already had, that they were living by, that the leaders were following, already said in Deuteronomy 24:16 that a child should never pay for the sin of their fathers and vice versa. And the Israelite leaders are following this law and this process, so the assumption, a reasonable assumption, is that the family was in on this sin. 
Besides, all the practical evidence actually leads you to that conclusion as well. I mean, the booty Achan had taken in disobedience was hidden right in the center of his tent under the rug. It would be nearly impossible for his whole family to not have known it was there. The family is almost certainly complicit in this sin. This virus was already spreading. Even though the text doesn't give all the layout, all the details of the evidence to make us be able to say that conclusively. But here's what I really want you to see. Here's what I really want you to see. When you read this process of investigation that is divinely inspired by God in this process, it it looks like this. He goes through the step process. The step one, he says, tell all of Israel to consecrate themselves for tomorrow God will reveal where the sin is. Warning all of Israel, inviting them to repentance. Step two of the process, about 20 hours later, all of Israel gathers tribe by tribe, probably a couple million people. That's a long walk to consider coming clean in, right? Step three, the priests worship and pray, and they ask each of the 12 tribes' leaders one by one to step forward. And the priests cast the lot, and if God says not guilty, that man walks back, and then the next tribal leader walks forward, and they do the same thing over and over again, several minutes for each man. Between one and 12 times, they do this until God picks the tribe of Judah. I mean, if I were Achan, I'd hope that at that point I'd be repenting when, he, when God picked my tribe after 24-hour warning, right? Step four, all the leaders of all the clans of Judah's tribe step forward. This is several dozen leaders. And one by one, they are asked to go through the same process until God picks the Zerahite clan. I mean, God is adding incentive to, to, to repent, isn't he? By picking right again. This is getting closer and closer. Step five, all the extended family groups. I mean, this is hundreds of men, all the grandfathers and great-grandfathers still alive who are heads of extended families. One by one, they come forward. They pray, they cast the lots, and finally the family of Zimri is chosen. I mean, God's increasing, isn't he, this motivational pressure? I mean, even if Achan isn't repenting, if I'm his family members, by this time God picking that much right, I'm thinking about repenting, aren't I? Step six. They had large families back then. Most of the families probably would have had between five and ten boys in the family. And Zimri's family reunion would have been 30 to 50 men who were heads of nuclear family groups. And the text says, man by man, each one stepped forward, one by one by one. The same process. And can you imagine Achan with all of his other brothers and uncles and cousins and his dad all standing in this line as one by one his dad and his brothers and his uncles and cousins are peeling off and they're all being found not guilty. And then they're turning around and they're giving the rest of the shrinking line the look. Right? Who here brought embarrassment to our name as a family? Until God chooses Achan as the guilty party. And Achan, when confronted, he confirms that, yeah, he did it. And he tells the elders where to find the booty in the rug, in the, under the rug in the middle of the tent. And the elders go to his tent, which, think about this large crowd, it's probably maybe up to an hour to get there and back. And they confirm the accuracy of Achan's confession and his guilt. This is a long process. Achan knows his guilt. His family almost certainly is complicit 
and knows the guilt. God gives them 24 hours clear warning, plenty of time with multiple steps that each give Achan and his family an increasingly pressured opportunity to repent. And even though Achan has just witnessed days earlier God saving a pagan prostitute from her sin, allowing Achan to see up close and personal this mercy of God that he showed Rahab with such vividness, knowing that God forgives people who have sinned in much more obvious ways than he, Achan stands there defiant. I mean, when you read his admission of sin, it's just a simple statement of facts. No repentance, no forgive me, no fellow Israelites, I'm so sorry that my sin cost the life of some of your loved ones and cost you so much pain. There's none of that. Achan admits he sinned, but there's this tone of justification. I saw these beautiful, valuable things, I coveted them, and I took them, and I know it was sin. His family doesn't repent either. Knowing how God forgives in so many other places in the Old Testament and the New Testament, if Achan had willingly come forward and repented, forgiveness would have surely been given. God went to great lengths to allow, even invite, even pressure Achan and his family to repent. Now, that doesn't solve all of our objections to this passage. I mean, the punishment is brutal, isn't it? Right? But it begs us to consider the question, Do we want to focus in these stories on the final brutal punishment, the outcome of the judgment? Or do we want to focus on the 400 plus years of God's patience toward the people of the land before bringing judgment and the multiple opportunities that that represented for them to choose to change? Or do we want to focus on the extreme patience God showed in this process, trying to encourage Achan to repent? And the reality, God did forgive people with more blatant sin than Achan. And that kind of graciousness and forgiveness is all throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. Do we have the courage to hold steady in focusing on God's goodness? Or put it another way, we can choose to see the patience and the kindness and the mercy of God, which is so very evident even in this passage that we struggle with. Or we can choose to argue with God saying we know better what justice was in this situation because we see it more clearly than you, God. We know better than you, God, how threatening and damaging the spread of this virus of sin could have been among the people. And and we can say to you, God, that you're you're ignorant and I know better. You, You got justice wrong on the level of your punishment because I understand all of these things better than you do, God. But when we choose the latter we miss the louder, more profound picture because we ignore the amazing patience in the process of God trying to lead even Achan to repentance and save and restore him and his family. I mean, come on. God knew Achan was the one who sinned. It wasn't news to him. He could have just said to Joshua, it's Achan. But instead he does this process. Because God is always working to create opportunities for mercy in our lives and in the lives of people around us. But never mistake His mercy for an unwillingness to also judge. Sometimes, oftentimes, the greatest courageous choices we can make are not to seize the day, are not to seize the day higher as choices. 
but rather the courageous choice is to hold steady, to ensure God is first in our lives, to ensure that we don't allow even little areas of sin to take root in our lives, and the courage to face our own sin honestly with deep humility and repentance because we choose to focus on the goodness of God that He is so eager and willing to forgive and love and restore. And see, when we live holding steady in the gospel that Jesus took upon Himself the penalty of the guilt and the judgment that was due me because of my sin, so that He could both fulfill justice and extend mercy, He took it on Himself so that He could bring healing and the hope of a promised land to my life, to your life. When we live trusting God as good, even in the details, it allows us to live truly free. Because we see God's goodness. And it helps us make the courageous choices to walk right into the middle of God's good power to fulfill His promises. His goodness and His power of His Holy Spirit are released on our behalf like a flood when He is first in our lives and when we trust His goodness and we're diligent to be obedient even in the little things. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, even now, as I, as I finish this and as I've been thinking about this all week, I, I just I come to this place and for me, Lord, I stand in awe of you right now. You are an awesome God to be rightly feared because you do judge sin. Lord, even more than that, even in these most difficult of passages, your goodness and your grace, your desire to show mercy, frankly, Lord, it's beyond anything I could ever think of giving myself. It's more patient, more kind, more forgiving. Lord, you give more opportunities than I think I would ever give. Lord, I ask that you'd come to each one of us now and that we would recognize that. We would recognize you right here, right now. If there's something that we're, we're stuck in, sin in, if there's something we're not paying attention to in the little areas to remain faithful, Lord, come right now with your forgiveness and your invitation to walk into the center of your power and your promise to restore and to bless us and our family. Lord, help us to learn this lesson of being steady in following you. Just come right now as we continue to worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you are loving Quest podcasts, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information about Quest, who we are and what we do, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at gotoquest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org.